Chapter 8 It was morning. All that made it morning for Ivan Ilyich was that Garrison had gone away, and Pyotr the footman had come in. He had put out the candles, opened one of the curtains, and began surreptitiously setting the room to rights. Whether it were morning or evening, Friday or Sunday, it all made no difference. It was always just the same thing. Gnawing, agonizing pain, never ceasing for an instant, the hopeless sense of life always ebbing away, but still not yet gone, always swooping down on him that fearful, hated death, which was the only reality and always the same falsity. What were days or weeks or hours of the day to him? Will you have tea, sir? He wants things done in their regular order. In the morning the family should have tea, he thought, and only said, no. Would you care to move on to the sofa? He wants to make the room tidy, and I'm in his way. I'm uncleanliness, disorder, he thought, and only said, No, leave me alone. The servant still moved busily about his work. Ivan Ilyich stretched out his hand. Pyotr went up to offer his services. What can I get you? My watch. Pyotr got out the watch, which lay just under his hand, and gave it him. Half past eight. Are they up? Not yet, sir. Vladimir Ivanovich, that was his son, has gone to the high school, and Praskovia Fedorovna gave orders that she was to be waked if you asked for her. Shall I send word? No, no need. What should I, should I try some tea, he thought? Yes, tea, bring it. Pyotr was on his way out. Ivan Ilyich felt frightened of being left alone. How keep him? Oh, the medicine. Pyotr, give me my medicine. Oh, well, maybe medicine may still be some good. He took the spoon, drank it. No, it does no good. It's all rubbish, deception, he decided, as soon as he tasted the familiar, mawkish, hopeless taste. No, I can't believe it now. But the pain, why this pain? If it would go, if it would only cease for a minute. And he groaned. Pyotr turned round. No, go on, bring the tea. Pyotr turned away. Ivan Ilyich, left alone, moaned, not so much from the pain, awful as it was, as from misery. Always the same thing again and again, all these endless days and nights. If it would only be quicker. Quicker to what? Death darkness. No, no, anything better than death. When Pyotr came in with the tea on a tray, Ivan Ilyich stared for some time absent-mindedly at him, not grasping who he was and what he wanted. Pyotr was disconcerted by this stare. And when he showed he was disconcerted, Ivan Ilyich came to himself. Oh, yes, he said. Tea. Good. Set it down. Only help me to wash and put on a clean shirt and Ivan Ilyich began his washing. He washed his hands slowly, and then his face, cleaned his teeth, combed his hair, and looked in the looking-glass. He felt frightened at what he saw, especially at the way his hair clung limply to his pale forehead. When his shirt was being clean, changed, he knew he would be still more terrified if he glanced at his body, and he avoided looking at himself. But at last it was all over, he put on his dressing gown, covered himself with a rug, and put in the armchair to and sat in the armchair to drink his tea.
For one moment, he felt refreshed. But as soon as he began to drink the tea, again there was the same taste, the same pain. He lay down and dismissed Piotr. Always the same. A gleam of hope flashes for a moment, then again the sea of despair roars about him again. And always pain, always pain, always heartache, and always the same thing. Alone, it is awfully dreary. He longs to call someone, but he knows beforehand that with others present it will be worse. Morphine, again, only to forget again. I'll tell him, the doctor, that he must think of something else. I can't go on. It can't go on. It can't go on like this. One hour, two hours pass like this. Then there is a ring at the front door. The doctor, perhaps. Yes, it is the doctor, fresh, hearty, fat, and cheerful, wearing that expression that seems to say, You there are in a panic about something, but we'll soon set things right for you. The doctor is aware that this expression is hardly fitting here, but he has put it on once and for all, and can't take it off, like a man who has put on a frock coat to, to pay a round of calls. In a hearty, reassuring manner, the doctor rubs his hands. I'm cold. It's a sharp frost. Just let me warm myself, he says with an expression, as though it's only a matter of waiting a little till he's warm, and as soon as he's warm, he'll set everything to rights. Well, now, how are you? Ivan Ilyich feels that the doctor would like to say, How's the little trouble? But that he feels that he can't talk like that, and says, how did you pass the night? Ivan Ilyich looks at the doctor with an expression that asks, Is it possible you're never ashamed of lying? But the doctor does not care to understand this look, and Ivan Ilyich says, It's always just as awful. The pain never leaves me, never ceases. If only there were something. Ah, you're all like that. All sick people say that. Come now, I do believe I'm thawed. Even Praskovia Fedorovna, who's so particular, could find no fault with my temperature. Well, now I can say good morning, and the doctor shakes hands. And dropping his former levity, the doctor, with a serious face, proceeds to examine the patient, feeling his pulse, to take his temperature, and then the tappings and the soundings begin. Ivan Ilyich knows positively and indubitably that it's all nonsense and empty deception. But when the doctor, kneeling down, stretches over him, putting his ear first higher, then lower, and goes through various gymnastic evolutions over him with a serious face, Ivan Ilyich is affected by this, as he used sometimes to be affected by the speeches of the lawyers in court, though he was perfectly well aware that they were telling lies all the while, and, they, and why they were telling lies. The doctor kneeling on the sofa, was still sounding him when there was a rustle of Praskovia Fedorovna's silk dress in the doorway, and she was heard scolding Pyotr for not having let her know that the doctor had come. She comes in, kisses her husband, and at once begins to explain that she has been up a long while and that it was only through a misunderstanding that she was not there when the doctor came. Ivan Ilyich looks at her, scans her all over, and sets down against her her whiteness and plumpness, and the cleanness of her hands and neck, and the glossiness of her hair, and the gleam full of life in her eyes. With all the force of his soul, he hates her. And when she touches him, it, feels, it makes him suffer from the thrill of hatred he feels for her. 
Her attitude to him and his illness is still the same. Just as the doctor had taken up a certain line with the patient, which he was not now able to drop, so she too had taken up a line with him. That he was not doing something he ought to do, and he was himself to blame, and she was lovingly reproaching him for his neglect, and she could not now get out of this attitude. Why, you know, he won't listen to me. He doesn't take his medication or medicine at the right times. And what's worse still, he insists on lying in the position that surely must be bad for him, with his legs in the air. She described how he made Garrison hold his legs up. The doctor smiled with kindly condensation, <laughs> um, not condensation, condescension, that said, Oh well, it can't be helped. These sick people do take up such foolish fancies. We must, but we must forgive them. When the examination was over, the doctor looked at his watch, and then Praskovia Fedorovna informed Ivan Ilyich that it must, of course, be as he liked but she had sent today for a celebrated doctor, and that he would examine him and have a consultation with Mikhail Danilo, uh, Danilovich, which was the name of their regular doctor. Don't oppose it now, please. This I'm doing entirely for my own sake, she said ironically, meaning it to be understood that she was doing it all for his sake and was only saying this to give him no right to refuse her request. He lay silent, knitting his brows. He felt that he was hemmed in by such a tangle of falsity that it was hard to disentangle anything from it. Everything she was doing for him was entirely for her own sake, and she told him that she was doing for her own sake what she actually was doing for her own sake as something so incredible that he would take it as meaning the opposite. At half-past eleven, the celebrated doctor came. Again came the sounding, and then grave conversation in his presence and in the other room about the kidney and the appendix, the end questions and answers, with, with such an air of significance that again, instead of the real, real question of life and death, which was now the only one that confronted him, the question that came uppermost was of the kidney and the appendix, which were doing something not as they ought to do, and were for that reason being attacked by, by Mikhail Danilovich and the celebrated doctor, and forced to mend their, way, mend their ways. The celebrated doctor took leave of him with a serious but not a hopeless face. And to the timid question which Ivan Ilyich addressed to him while he lifted his eyes, shining with terror and hope up towards him, was there a chance of recovery? He answered that he could not answer for it, but that there was a chance. The look of hope with which Ivan Ilyich watched the doctor out was so piteous that, seeing it, Praskovia Fedorovna positively burst into tears as she went out of the door to hand the celebrated doctor his fee in the next room. The gleam of hope kindled by the doctor's assurance did not last long. Again the same room, the same pictures, the curtains, the wallpaper, ow, my foot is cramping, the medicine bottles, and ever the same, his aching, suffering body. And Ivan Ilyich began to moan. They gave him injections, and he sank into oblivion. When he waked up, it was getting dark. They brought him his dinner. He forced himself to eat some broth, and again everything the same, and again the coming night.
After dinner at seven o'clock, Praskovia Fedorovna came into his room, dressed as though going to a soiree, uh, with her full bosom laced in tight, uh, laced in tight, and traces of powder on her face. She had in the morning mentioned to him that they were going to the theater. Sarah Bernhardt, with the um, footnote says the great French actress toured Russia in the winter of eighteen eighty one to eighteen eighty two was visiting the town, and they had a box which she, he had insisted on their taking. By now he had forgotten about it, and her smart attire was an offense to him. But he concealed his feeling when he recollected that he had himself insisted on their taking a box and going, because it, because it was an aesthetic pleasure, beneficial and instructive for the children. Praskovia Fedorovna came in satisfied with herself, but yet with something of a guilty air. She sat down, asked how he was, as he saw, simply for the sake of asking, and not for the sake of learning anything, knowing indeed that there was nothing to learn, and began telling him how absolutely necessary it was, how she would not have gone for anything, but the box had been taken, and Ellen and their daughter, and uh, Petrushev, the examining lawyer, the daughter's suitor, were going, and that it was out of the question to let them go alone but that she would have liked much better to stay with him. If only he would be sure to follow the doctor's prescription while she was away. Oh, and Fyodor Dmitrievich, the suitor, would like to come in. May he, and Liza? Yes, let them come in. The daughter came in, in full dress, her fresh young body bare, with his body made, while his body made him suffer so. But she made a show of it. She was strong, healthy, obviously in love and impatient of the illness, suffering, and death that hindered her happiness. Fyodor Dmitrievich came in, too, in evening dress, his hair curled a la Capul, which is in a style set by Joseph Capul, Capul a popular French tenor of the day, with his long, sinewy neck tightly fenced around by a white collar, with his vast expanse of white chest and strong thighs displayed in narrow black trousers, with one white glove in his hand and a crushed opera hat. Behind him crept in unnoticed the little high school boy in his new uniform, poor fellow, in gloves, and with that awful blue ring under his eyes that Ivan Ilyich knew the meaning of. He always felt sorry for his son, and pitiable indeed was his scared face of sympathetic suffering. Except Garrison, Ivan Ilyich fancied that Volodya was the only one that understood and was sorry. They all sat down. Again they asked how he was. A silence followed. Liza asked her mother about the opera glass. An altercation ensued between the mother and daughter as to who had taken it and where it had been put. It turned into an unpleasant squabble. Fyodor Dmitrievich asked Ivan Ilyich whether he had seen Sarah Bernhard. Ivan Ilyich could not at first catch the question that was asked him, and then he said, No, have you seen her before? Yes, in Adrian Lekovre. Praskovia Fedorovna observed that she was particularly good in that part. The daughter made some reply. A conversation sprang up about the art and naturalness of her singing, 
that conversation that is continually repeated and always the same. In the middle of the conversation, Fyodor Dmitrievich glanced at Ivan Ilyich and relapsed into silence. The others looked at him and became mute, too. Ivan Ilyich was staring with glittering eyes straight before him, obviously furious with them. This had to be said right, but it could not anyhow be said right. This silence had somehow to be broken. No one would venture on breaking it, and all began to feel feel alarmed that the decorous deception was somehow breaking down, and the facts would be exposed to all. Liza was the first to pluck up courage. She broke the silence. She tried to cover up what they were all feeling, but inadvertently she gave it utterance. If we are going, though, it's time to start, she said, glancing at her watch, a gift from her father, and with a scarcely perceptible meaning smile to the young man, referring to something only known to themselves, she got up with a rustle of her skirts. They all got up, said goodbye, and went away. When they were gone, Ivan Ilyich fancied he was easier. There was no falsity. That had gone away with them, but the pain remained. That continual pain, that continual terror, made nothing harder, nothing easier. It was always worse. Again came min uh, minute after minute, hour after hour, till the same and still, still the same and still no end, and ever more terrible the inevitable end. Yes, send Garrison, he said in answer to Piotr's question. Chapter 9 Late at night his wife came back. She came in on tiptoe, but he heard her, opened his eyes, and made haste to close them again. She wanted to send away Garrison and sit up with him herself instead. He opened his eyes and said, No, go away. Are you in great pain? Always the same. Take some opium. He agreed and drank it. She went away. Till three o'clock he slept a miserable sleep. It seemed to him that he and his pain were being thrust somewhere into a narrow, deep, black sack, and they kept pushing him further and further in, and still could not thrust him to the bottom. And this operation was awful to him, and was accompanied with agony. And he was afraid, and yet wanted to fall into it, and struggled, and yet tried to get into it. And all of a sudden he slipped and fell and woke up. Garrison, still the same, is sitting at the foot of the bed, half dozing peacefully, patient. And he is lying with his wasted legs clad in stockings, raised on Garrison's shoulders, the same candle burning in the alcove, and the same interminable uh, pain. Go away, Garrison, he whispered. It's all right, sir. I'll stay a bit longer. No, go away. He took his legs down, lay sideways on his arm, and he felt very sorry for himself. He only waited till Garrison had gone away into the next room. He could restrain himself no longer, and cried like a child. He cried at his own helplessness, at his awful loneliness, at the cruelty of people, at the cruelty of God, at the absence of God. Why hast thou done all this? What brought me to this? Why, why torture me so horribly? He did not expect an answer, and wept indeed that there was and could not be an answer. The pain grew more acute again, but he did not stir, 
did not call. He said to himself, Come, more then, come, strike me. But what for? What have I done to thee? What for? Then he was still, ceased weeping, held his breath, and was all attention. He listened, as it were, not to a voice uttering sounds, but to the voice of his soul, to the current of thoughts that rose up within him. What is it you want, was the first clear idea able to be put into words that he grasped. What? Not to suffer, to live, he answered. And again he was utterly plunged into attention so intense that even the pain did not distract him. To live? Live how? the voice of his soul was asking. Why, live as I used to live before, happily and pleasantly. As you used to live before, happily and pleasantly? queried the voice. And he began going over in his imagination the best moments of his pleasant life. But, strange to say, all these best moments of his pleasant life seemed now not at all what they had seemed then. All, except the first memories of his childhood. There, in his childhood, there had been something really pleasant in which one could have lived if it had come back. But the creature who had this pleasant experience was no more. It was like a memory of someone else. As soon as he reached the beginning of what had resulted in him as he was now, Ivan Ilyich, all that had seemed joys to him then now melted away before his eyes and were transformed into something trivial and often disgusting. And the further he went from childhood, the nearer to the actual present, the more worthless and uncertain were the joys. It began with life at the school of jurisprudence. Then there had still been something genuinely good, then there had been gaiety, then there had been friendship, then there had been hopes. But in the higher classes, these good moments were already becoming rarer. Later on, during the first period of his official life at the governor's, good moments appeared, but it was all mixed, and less and less of it was good. And further on, even less was good, and the further he went, the less good there was. His marriage... As gratuitous as the uh, disillusion of it and the smell of his wife's breath and the sensuality, the hypocrisy, and that deadly official life, and anxiety about money, and so for one year, and two, and ten, and twenty, and always the same thing. And the further he went, the more deadly it became. As though I had been going steadily downhill, imagining what that I was going uphill. So it was, in fact. In public opinion, I was going uphill, and steadily, as I got up it, life was ebbing away from me. And now the work's done, there's only to die. But what is this? What for? It cannot be. It cannot be that life has been so senseless, so loathsome. And if it really was so loathsome and senseless, then why die, and die in agony? There's something wrong. Can it be that I have not lived as one ought? Suddenly came into his head. But how not so, when I've done everything as it should be done, he said, and at once dismissed this only solution of all the enigma of life and death as something utterly out of the question. What do you want now? To live? Live how? Live as you live at the courts when the usher booms out, booms out. The judge is coming. The judge is coming. The judge is coming he repeated to himself. Here he is, the judge. 
but I'm not to blame, he shrieked in fury. What's it for? And he left off for crying, and turning with his face to the wall, fell to pondering always on the same question. What for? Why all this horror? But however much he pondered, he could not find an answer. And whenever the idea struck him, as it often did, that it all came of his never having lived as he ought, he thought of all the correctness of his life and dismissed this strange idea.